Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to say we have Ostrid Eckert on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, The Struggle for the Files, The Western Allies, and the Return of German Archives After the Second World War. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Astrid. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, I'm very glad to have you today. We're talking with Astrid Eckert about her book, The Struggle for the Files, The Western Allies, and the Return of German Archives After the Second World War. This is a really remarkable book. An incredible amount of research went into it. And from the historian's point of view, it is very important because... As I tell all of my students, it is in the primary sources that we actually find the material that we need to say any true sentence about the past. And what Astrid has done is she has described how a mass of primary sources, a truly enormous collection of primary sources, um, were first captured by the Allies. And then one thing I was interested to learn in the book, moved around a lot. Really, a lot, and and then uh, she discusses the politics of repatriating them from from the perspective of the of the new German government, the post-war German government in the West, at least. Uh, you know, they felt quite rightfully so that, uh, to put it kind of metaphorically, that their history had been taken, and 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 it had been taken, and they wanted it back. And this was sort of one of the first moments at, at which I think the Bundesrepublik sort of pushed back against the Allies and said, you know, uh, fine, we didn't do things exactly the way we should have, but you really should help us out here and give these back. And she discusses the negotiations and and how eventually the the documents were repatriated so that, you know, any historian can go visit them in one of these wonderful German archives, which are truly wonderful uh, places to visit, uh, staffed with incredibly professional archivists, and they're just great places to work. So I congratulate... uh, Astrid on on writing the book. Astrid, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes, sure. And thanks for your kind words about uh, the book. Um, I am a freshly minted associate professor at Emory University in Atlanta, and I teach modern German and European history, you know, the modern Germany survey, the modern Europe introductory course, a class on Nazi Germany, and also more specialized seminars on um, the second half of the 20th century. And um, I did my PhD at Free University Berlin. Uh, My mentor was actually an Americanist. Knut Krakow from the uh, John F. Kennedy Institute for North American Studies. So in my previous life, I was an Americanist. And uh, in fact, my educational background is a bit of a German-American joint venture. Um, I, I studied at Free University Berlin as an undergrad. And then I spent a very uh, formative year at University of Michigan in the mid-90s, uh, returned to Berlin, went back to Berlin uh, only to... Uh, go back to the U.S. one more time, this time to New Haven, and after that, back to Berlin again. And uh, I finished my Ph.D. there in 2002, and then my 
my first acad academic job after the PhD was at the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a research fellow there for three years. That's like, you know, an extended postdoc. Mm -hmm. And from there, I eventually moved on to Emory. Yeah. That, 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 that postdoc is a, a lot of very uh, sort of uh, very well-known people have been through that postdoc. German history, yes, it's a it's a it's a good one to land. So, um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to write this book? Why this particular topic? Yeah, um, how do you get to write about captured German records? Um, the topic is perhaps a bit odd, and uh, one can't quite plan on on doing this. I don't think it's odd at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was originally exploring a very different topic. Um, I've always been interested in the Allied occupation of Germany after the Second World War. I consider that a very formative period for the post-war era. And I had read about um, the project of the American War Department. Um, they wanted to send a group of people over to the continent in uh, 1945 to interview leading Nazis uh, before these uh, thugs were uh, slated for trials. So some, you know, an oral history project of sorts. So off I went to Charlottesville to look at the personal papers of someone involved in that interview project and that person later became a professor at UVA after the war and um, I mean little did I know that Richard Overy was working on his book Interrogations at the time mm -hmm. uh, that was about uh, you know Nazi bigwigs and what they had to say from the time of their capture to the time of their trials um, but the material at the Alderman Library that I was looking at uh, wasn't convincing anyway so I abandoned the whole idea right there in the reading room. Mm -hmm. And the problem was, though, that I had booked a room for a week, and I didn't know anybody in Charlottesville, except for Mr. Jefferson, of course. So I, I needed to find something to do. And uh, being the nerd that I probably am, I returned to the archives, and I said, well, what else do you got? Yeah. So I continued to work with the very same collection because the UVA professor who had been sent on the interview mission uh, would later become the third chairman of the American Committee for the Study of War Documents. And this committee uh, collaborated with the HA, the American Historical Association, to microfilm captured German records before their return to West Germany. Um, the committee uh, consisted of a group of American historians who got wind of plans that the American government might return captured German records to the Bonn government, the West German government, as a goodwill gesture. And they worried that uh, once returned, the Germans might just put this material under lock and key. So this group um, constituted itself, raised funds, engaged in lobby work to get access to the records, and then they filmed the material for posterity. So you can still go to the National Archives today and, and work with the so-called T-rolls, the rolls of microfilm uh, produced at the time. And um, among the members of the committee, of this uh, uh, Committee on War Documents, were many young scholars who would turn into eminent historians, like, you know, Gerhard Weinberg, the military historian. Yeah or Walter Dorn, or uh, Raoul Hilberg uh, was once working with the captured records when he was still a grad student. And um, I knew these names for, from my undergrad reading, so the entire microfilming operation caught my attention, and I started to take notes 
not quite knowing yet what those notes might be good for. And uh, when I was back on campus, I ran into the library and I started to look for literature on the issue of captured German records. Um, having been trained in Germany, I was taught that every new projects begin every new project begins with heavy bibliographical work. So that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, very little had been written about the history of the captured records. Um, there was one conference volume from 1974 that was a very helpful start. But for the most part, anything about the issue had been written by archive specialists. I mean, nothing wrong with that. But I thought there was yet another story, a, a story that was still in need of, of context and that needed to be based on multi-archival research. But but that's really how this project started with a few uncommitted days in in Charlottesville. That's a great story, actually. That's that's the way they should start. I think sort of by <laughs> happenstance discovery of something something strange. Um, and I should also say that one of the things I talk to my students about a lot is establishing what we call sometimes the provenance of materials. In other words, we sometimes call this the chain of evidence as well. So where do they come to us from? And, and really what you've done in the book is you've established the, the sort of provenance of all of it, millions of documents, where they were, when they were, who had taken them, who was in control of them, and, and you know how they ended up where we find them today. That's a very important thing, and, and it's a tremendous service to the entire discipline, I have to say. Uh, so let's begin to tell the story of these uh, files themselves. Can you talk a little bit, and this is slightly outside the context of the book, but I think people would be interested. Could you talk a little bit about the way archives were kept in uh, Weimar and then later Nazi Germany? Did they they systematically collect documents and who collected them? Yeah, I think the um, German archival tradition uh, extends even further back into, I think we have to look into the early 19th century. Um, Basically, state archives... um, as the name says, already came about to collect the papers of the state. Um, and uh, so you basically mirror the state bureaucracy in the archive and uh, you see the functioning of the state sedimented in the archive, uh, in, in, in its records, record groups. And uh, the German archival profession always prided itself in its uh, professionalism and uh, being at the forefront of having, you know, an orderly archive administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what I worked with a lot were uh, records of the Prussian archival administration and the Prussian archival administration uh, was also uh, kind of leading in the German Reich after uh, 71, uh, 1871, that is. So, um, yeah, how, how do archives uh, function? Um, they, their functioning has uh, certainly changed over time. Um, uh, in the late 19th century, the archive was really a, a place for the state uh, bureaucrat and for an accredited uh, historian, meaning a historian who had a university post, but certainly uh, not yet for, you know, a grad student or... Uh, <laughs> So you needed the proper credentials to be allowed in, right? And um, uh, and that was still this uh, this culture was very still uh, very much still in place in the in the nineteen twenties. Um, archives, of course, are uh, and history writing history writing in general um, has a lot to do with 
civic, civic education, with politics. So archives were, of course, always a place where the rulers uh, took active interest of how these records were being used, uh, which story was being told uh, based on these records. So issues of access are always highly political. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, these, the people that ran these archives were pr- professionals. That is, they had gone through archival programs, and they were uh, they were officers of the state. Yeah, they, they were civil servants, and yeah. uh, and again, the Germans prided themselves in having the first um, archival education programs, archive schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the the archivists, the leading archivists, were often uh, students of history. They held a PhD in history and then moved on. Uh, to uh, in a further archival uh, education, so they were uh, both basically. They they also were still active in historiography. They were still writing. Um, so uh, you would uh, spend part of the day on administering the archive, and then often in the afternoon you had some research hours uh, and would work with the material in in your particular archive, and, and you would be publishing actively and be part be part of the historical community. How do I get that job? <laughs> we, we don't have that job anymore. <laughs> um, so the uh, the German bureaucracy uh, under the Empire and then in Weimar and then uh, the, the under under the Third Reich they collected massive amounts of, of stuff, huge huge amounts of stuff, and deposited in these places. Uh, the Allies knew that this material was there. When did they first start to express an interest in collecting or gathering them? Well, uh, we probably have to break down the term the Allies. Um, The first people who actively thought about this were actually professional archivists uh, in Britain and in the United States. Um, There were, as the war was progressing, there was growing concern about cultural goods in war areas in general, not just archives, but also, you know, artwork and other things, buildings, monuments. And uh, so the archivists actually came a little late to this party and uh, started to discuss first amongst themselves what needs to be done to protect the archival heritage of uh, the countries where uh, the war would now, you know, uh, take place. So they were as concerned about France and Italy as they were concerned about the archives in in Germany. Um, And uh, these archivists... Uh, started to articulate their concerns and their vision uh, and try to get in touch with uh, the military leaders and the political leaders and uh, kind of get into the policy stream, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, since uh, Roosevelt himself was quite concerned with his own legacy uh, and was planning already uh, a presidential library, the, uh, uh, the the librarian or the archivist uh, he worked with kind of had his ear and started to inject uh, news about these um, concerns. And so he, he made it a cabinet matter at some point and, uh, and archival protection slowly entered uh, policymaking. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the... Uh Oh, well, let's break down the Allies. The Americans and the British and the French, especially the Americans and the British, had uh, larger fish to fry in 1943 and 1944. Namely, they had to actually defeat uh, the Germans and the Japanese. How were relations between these groups that wanted to preserve these archives and the uh, Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force? We'll just call that the Supreme Headquarters. Yeah. 
Well, not not really perfect, as you say. Um, there was uh, there was a war to win, and uh, so uh, you know concerns for cultural goods really had to take uh, take the back seat as long as um, Allied soldiers might might be in danger. So um, there was first a war to win, and and even. Uh, even if archival material or any uh, written material from the German side got captured, the primary uh, interest was intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, so this material would be analyzed for uh, to find out, you know, whatever the next move of the enemy might be. Uh, and in the process of doing so, papers got shuffled, papers got uh, record groups got uh, broken up, and uh, you know, the right hand didn't necessarily knew what the left hand was doing. And for professional archivists, that was a painful state of affairs. So they uh, tried to um, attach professional archivists to uh, the the armies um, and have uh, archivists on hand in the war theater. Um, That was quite dangerous and it didn't always work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But slowly but surely they they tried to get um, a handle on on the situation. Yeah, I've just the image of the fighting archivist has popped into my head, you know, (laughs) out there in the field saving documents. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, one figure that I found particularly interesting in the book, and that is, I don't remember his first name, but his last name is Posner, I think. Yeah, and yeah. Posner. He has a really interesting life, and he uh, he makes a really interesting argument about this. So maybe you could talk a little bit about him. Yeah, Ernst Posner was a, a German archivist. Um, he basically uh, learned his trade, his profession, in the Privy State Archive uh, in Berlin-Dahlem, uh, the Prussian State Archive. And he was one of the leading archivists of the uh, German profession, uh, but he was of Jewish ancestry, and you can uh, almost figure the rest. So he was uh, driven out of the profession. Uh, first, he was relieved of his position at the archive, but could continue as a private researcher to use the records there. But then in 1935, with the Nuremberg laws, that was also ruled out. In 38, then, during Kristallnacht, he was arrested, and as so many other Jewish men thrown into the concentration camp. So he spent several weeks in Sachsenhausen, and while his wife frantically tried to get the papers for immigration, they managed to immigrate in 39 via Sweden, and he then made it to the United States and became an adjunct professor at American University, and uh, also uh, worked at the National Archives in D.C. And um, so he really, uh, he went on to become a very important um, archival thinker and had much influence on the American uh, archival uh, profession. So really very interesting figure in his own right. And um, he, in, uh, in 43, he made the argument that the control of archives is uh, very important to the war effort and very important to whatever comes uh, after the war, uh, the occupation period, and he just really tried to um, make the policymakers see the utility of archives uh, for their mission in order then to, you know, through the back door, get uh, protection for archives installed, which would then also, in his uh, hope and thinking, would also cover historic archives that had no immediate utility for the occupation forces. Mm-hmm. Clever and resilient guy. I would say, at least. So uh, as the uh, Americans and the British sort of move across France and into Germany, they start to run into these archives. Is there any systematic 
effort to collect them? Do they have a list of them? Do they know where they are? Or, or are they just coming across them? What, what, which is a way of asking, what had the Nazis actually done with the archives during the war? Yeah. Um, well, as the Allies intensified the air war and the bombing campaigns, uh, the Germans were trying to safeguard um, their archives and also pieces of art and many other things by removing them from the big cities and putting them into, you know, salt mines and, and you know, just out of the line of fire. So several archives got moved around. Um, the archive of the German Foreign Office was stored in three castles in the Hartz Mountains. And, you know, city archives and various other um, institutions were were removed. Um, the archivist of the city of Frankfurt thought it was defeatist uh, to do so. So he left his archive where it was. And guess what? It's gone. And, um, yeah, so uh, the Allies did not necessarily know where things were. They tried to gather as much information as possible from POWs, you know, through interrogations, um, and locate where material was. Um, and then as they as they uh, entered Germany and started to advance uh, town by town, um, they did come across things. They had no idea what they were. They had no idea that they had been there. Um, and um, I'm, I don't know, I'm still torn uh, just in my thinking about the American occupation. You know, on Mondays, I think it was a very organized endeavor. And on Tuesdays, I think it was totally chaotic. Um, so it, there was a lot of coincidence and luck involved in what they confiscated. And in some cases, they also just came to light. And the Germans um, had made an effort to burn uh, certain records. And uh, just do away with them. Yeah, you tell a couple of really interesting, and I think they are um, illustrative uh, stories about particular sources or kinds of archives. For for example, um, the one I'm thinking about is the uh, membership card file for the Nazi Party. Could you tell that story? Yeah, um, that is uh, that was a card file with the names and you know date of entry into the party or date of application to enter and and stuff like that of individual members um, and uh, this card file was huge I mean like you know between eight to ten million cards and it uh, originally came uh, was held in Munich at party headquarters and uh, they wanted to uh, destroy it so it was being trucked to a paper mill and uh, the owner of the paper mill I mean we these are the last days of the war. He could figure that things would turn out badly for the Germans. So he uh, decided not to comply and not to uh, implement the order and uh, was kind of tugging it away under a heap of trash. And uh, and once the Americans had arrived, he tried to alert them to um, you know this find, to what he had in his possession there. And he was ignored. Uh, for quite some time, and he had to say it several times until an archives officer realized, you know, what red hot material he had on his hands there. So eventually, like, you know, six weeks later, uh, it was uh, secured and uh, promptly became one of the, you know, prize finds of the entire endeavor. Mm -hmm. I think the German Historical Institute, if anybody from the German Historical Institute is listening, should name a prize after that guy. <laughs> because he, yeah, he did our work for us. Thank you very much, Mr. Mill owner. Uh, the, uh, the, the, let's talk a little bit about the problem of pilfering and of, of, um, 
and of collecting trophies. And one of the things I really found interesting in your book is that, you know, we think of soldiers going into these castles where they find, say, they pilfer stuff and they stick it in their rucksacks and so on and so forth. But it went all the way up. Uh, everybody was interested in these things. Uh, could you tell the story about Hitler's political testament, which somehow oh. finds its way into, I think, Truman's hands or something? Yeah, yeah. it's um, um, well, in the uh, last days of his life, in his bunker, Hitler dictated his political testament and three copies, and, and personal testament as well. Three copies were being made and three messengers sent out so that it would really like reach posterity. And uh, these uh, three guys were eventually picked up uh, in, at different places and um, the documents they carried were confiscated and um, and the British were of the opinion that uh, this testament should remain secret, that it would be a bad idea to let the Germans know what the big leader had said in the end and uh, so they wanted it to, to disappear. Um, but uh, the Americans uh, didn't see it that way and uh, copies of this testament um, proliferated. Uh, you know, like copies were being made, facsimile copies, and one was actually presented to uh, Truman as as a souvenir, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also uh, put on display and reported on the radio, etc. So when uh, the, the the British wish was not, was not honored, but uh, at least the Americans agreed uh, no longer to you know to read it on the air basically mm-hmm. I think I find that very interesting so the um, how are relations between the uh, well I want to ask one thing because I'm a Russian historian how did the Russians figure in all of this were they were their feelings considered um, well I think that is I, I can illustrate that best by talking about the archive of the German Foreign Office. Yeah. Um, the uh, archive of the German Foreign Office was relocated to the Hartz Mountains um, and uh, to be out of the line of fire. And uh, it was discovered by British and American troops who kind of stumbled upon it and didn't quite know what it was. Uh, they thought, you know, all the, these neat papers stacked there, you know, with mysterious numbers on the packages. And, <laughs> and um, so they they reported their find and uh, somebody figured very quickly what, what this was. And uh, the problem is, though, that uh, the archive was located in three castles in the Hartz Mountains on the side of the mountains that would fall to the Soviets. You know, at Yalta, they had determined which occupation zone uh, everyone would get and uh, these towns happened to be in the Soviet zone. So obviously, um, that was a bad place as far as the Americans and British were concerned. So they decided to uh, whisk their find away, not leave it to the Soviets and not even tell them about it. And um, so in a you know night and fog operation, they <laughs> loaded up uh, 400 tons of documents and uh, trucked them to Marburg, which was in the American zone, and stored them there in the Marburg Castle. Incidentally, that's where the coffin of Hindenburg and Frederick the Great also ended up, (laughs) together with the records. And uh, so the Russians were not being told about this, uh, but the relations between the Americans and the British weren't uh, that golden either. I mean, everybody was very, very mistrustful that the other one might just, you know, grab an important document and and do something with it. So, um, but for the time being, for a few weeks... Uh, these uh, documents were uh, top secret until a British uh, a tabloid, they were pretty good at the time already, uh, blew their cover and reported on this find. Um, and, uh, and then the Russians started to ask uh, unpleasant questions.
Mm-hmm. And there were, I think this is illustrative of uh, British-American relations on this score. In, in those files, there were some uh, very politically sensitive things. For example, if I recall correctly from the book, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is in there. And the Americans end up publishing it. Yeah, is that right? Can you tell that story? Yeah, that's 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 really a good one. I mean, the uh, secret protocol of the what's commonly known as the Hitler-Stalin Pact. Yeah. Um, the secret protocol was uh, uh, had never been seen by anyone. Obviously, people in Eastern Europe figured out what ha- had happened because. Uh, the Soviets moved in in Eastern Poland, etc. And uh, so everybody kind of thought there must have been an additional uh, agreement between Hitler and Stalin at the time. And uh, so the Americans find the secret protocol in the uh, Foreign Office files. And uh, this is still, you know, a very malleable moment when it's not quite clear yet how relations between the Americans and the Soviets will will develop. Uh, so for the time being, they were uh, keeping, keeping it secret. But as relations between the Americans and the Soviets deteriorated, um, this material began to look like, you know, good stuff for a propaganda move, you know, to embarrass the Soviets. So um, uh, two historians were given the job to edit um, the documents relating to Nazi-Soviet relations um, in the late 1930s and and. Uh, uh, and this uh, manuscript with the documents, this edition was was ready uh, in late 1947, but uh, there was still an important uh, conference of foreign ministers in December 47 in London, and the Americans thought, okay, let's wait uh, how this uh, turns out. And as it was clear that the conference was uh, not constructive, uh, they gave the go-ahead uh, to publish this material. It came out in January 1948, and it really was a world sensation. Uh, the New York Times uh, covered it front page, and uh, the secret protocol was now out for everyone uh, to see. Unfortunately, uh, the Americans had forgotten that they were uh, uh, holding joint custody of these records <laughs> together with the Brits, and they had also um, neglected to inform the British ambassador. So uh, the Brits thought, okay, all bets are off, and yeah. they had screwed. Yeah. I think that goes to your point about uh, the Americans not being very well organized, really. We're not really known for being very well organized. My father was in the Army, and he used to say that it was the most disorganized place he'd ever been. So uh, in any event, there were other – sometimes – I, I don't recall how this story ends, but other politi- sort of politically sensitive materials were also found. And I'm thinking of the, um, the file on Stalin's son, if you remember that incident. Yeah. Um, and the British like, didn't want it. They, they really didn't want it to come out. What it? What? What they found there? Well, it was uh, a bit of a, um, a sad story, really. Um, Stalin's son had been captured by the Germans and taken to a concentration camp. Um, I, I can't recall whether it was Sachsenhausen or Oranienburg, but um, he, he. They thought that they have you know an interesting hostage there, not realizing that Stalin didn't give a damn. Uh, for his own son. So, um, and towards the end of the war, he uh, had a he, he was he was uh, shot by the Germans. And uh, the question was whether I mean the Germans always presented these incidents as you know uh, he was shot as he was trying to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there was an investigation because he was such a prominent prisoner, and uh, the the paperwork of this investigation was among the. Um, 
uh, the captured records. So when the the Brits first came across this material, they thought this was still at a time when everybody tried to keep up the facade of good um, inter-allied relations. They thought they should pass this on to Stalin as a kind of, you know, a gesture of condolence and um, and express their regret about his son's passing and everything. And uh, so they contemplated that move for, for a while. But then they had a closer look at this material, and it turns out that uh, Stalin's son had apparently very bad relations with British POWs in the concentration camp. So they thought that the discord between Stalin's son and uh, British POWs might reflect badly on the next uh, meeting with Stalin and might inject the wrong tone mm-hmm. into their deliberations. So they, they decided not to hand the material over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So continuing the theme of the political use of these documents, uh, the, the Americans and the British early on decide that they're going to use some of them to, to write a little bit of history or at least suggest a little bit of history in publishing documents of German foreign policy, a kind of very pointed selection of them. Uh, and I forget the name of this series. You can remind Doc- me. Yeah, Documents on German Foreign Policy is, yeah. is the name. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And and can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and its production and what it was intended to do? Yeah, and this is really an absolutely interesting and fascinating project. The uh, British and American governments committed to publish an academic source collection, like, you know, documents on German foreign policy, to document the German way into war and to make clear for the entire world to see that Hitler had planned this war all along and that, you know, Germany was responsible for the Second World War. And by using the word responsibility for war, that points us back already to the First World War. Um, The uh, German government, in in 1919, the German government was charged at the Versailles Peace uh, Conference uh, to hold sole responsibility for the uh, First World War. And that line was was needed to impose uh, reparations on Germany. And uh, the Germans, of course, uh, uh, were screaming hell about this and uh, called it the war guilt lie, you know, that they were being accused of having caused the First World War. So... Um, to, ref- to refute this claim that uh, that the Germans bore the guilt for the First World War, um, the Foreign Office, the German Foreign Office, created uh, an office called the War Guild Office. You know, just <laughs> and the sole purpose of this outfit was to refute this claim through you know publicity, publications um, by funding or let's say bribing uh, historians uh, abroad who are willing to. Uh, argue the German case. And their biggest coup was to start a document series called the Grosse, uh, Grosse Politik der Europäischen Kabinette, um, to start a document series and publish the official German foreign policy records. And, uh, and these records were meant to show uh, in a scholarly fashion that Germany was not to blame for the war. <laughs> and um, so basically, the Allied edition after the Second World War was almost a response mm-hmm. to the German interwar edition of documents. And they really wanted to make sure that the Germans would not get hold of their foreign office archive too early and that they could not use it um, to produce any comparable um, document edition in case they, you know, in case it got into them that they wanted to uh, refuse responsibility for the Second World War. Mm-hmm. 
That is sort of a cautionary tale, historians. Whenever the government asks you to do something, you may want to think twice about it. So I mean, it's it's fascinating that they would be that they would be interested in in, in doing this. Now, it, that this segues nicely into the, the sort of second part of our talk, I think, and that is that at this point, um, uh, foreigners are writing German history. Germans aren't writing it because they can't really write it because their archives have been taken. Uh, at what point do uh, German authorities start to ask for the repatriation of these documents once they've been um, absconded to various places, especially uh, in the United States? Yeah, I mean, the um, the uh, Americans and British uh, did a lot of things with these documents uh, because they could, um, and uh, there was not much the Germans uh, could do about this. I mean, during the Allied occupation, there was no central German government that could voice an opinion on this issue. Um, but once the West German state was founded in uh, 1949, the demand for the return of these records and archives was voiced rather quickly. And in fact, I was quite astonished to find find that uh, the German parliament, the Bundestag, passed a resolution to that effect in October 1849. And one needs to know that they convened for the very first time only in September 49. So within the first month of parliamentary business, they issued already a resolution that called for the return of these captured records. And I think that makes it pretty obvious that this issue was of major importance um, to the West Germans. Mm-hmm. And uh, who, who initiates this and why are they initiating it? I mean, how is uh, – w- what is public sentiment about these things? There is, for example, you talk about the response to the publication of these foreign documents. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, it's professional archivists who are among the first to flag the issue. Um, uh, they, uh, they are painfully aware that their records are gone or under, under um, allied, uh, in allied custody. So uh, they are the first to, to – uh, kind of lobby the, the newly constituted federal government to do something about this issue. Um, the fact that the Allies were now publishing German records abroad was really um, treated as, as, as a major offense uh, among, uh, how shall I say, nationally thinking people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it was, it was really uh, considered to be, uh, how do you say, um, an affront. Mm-hmm. Offensive. Uh, yeah, very offensive, and uh, especially since German historians were not involved in this endeavor. So uh, they basically, the expectation was that this document edition would be very tendentious and would be uh, doctored to reflect as badly as possible on the Germans. Um, I mean, of course, you know, from our perspective, we know that it doesn't need much doctoring to make Germans look very bad in that time period. So um, it it tells you something about their own sense of what Germany had just been through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and I guess one one question that you addressed in the book that I found really useful was uh, so so the, 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 the... Politicians and archivists in the Republic, uh, the Bundesrepublik, say, you know, we really should get these documents back because we need to write our own history or know our own history. That's a sensible argument. Um, but who's actually going to take care of them? What was the state of the German arch- 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 archival profession after the war? I mean, as you point out in the book, these were civil servants and they joined the Nazi party in um, droves. And uh, so who's going to take care of these documents? 
Yeah, that's that's a really a nice a nice question because it also um, addresses the uh, a, a different issue. And um, this book was published already in two thousand four in German, mm-hmm. and I was fortunate enough that it was then picked up by Cambridge University for uh, for translation. But in Germany, this book already had a bit of a of a of a life, and um, I had thought that I had written a contribution to the history of the early Federal Republic. I mean, I had thought the book addresses uh, issues such as, you know, contested sovereignty or relations uh, between West Germany and its Western allies or the beginnings of the writing of what Germans at the time called contemporary history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I still think the book's doing all that. But it really, the book had really had its strongest impact among um, archive professionals. Uh, for them, this was a book about archives, about archival history, and was among archivists that the book had uh, some real-life consequences. Because as you say, almost as an aside, I addressed some aspects of the history of the German archival profession uh, during the Nazi years. I found that uh, British and American officials were somewhat reluctant to return records to West Germany where uh, they would be in the custody of professional archivists. So I asked myself why the reluctance? I mean, what's wrong with German archivists? So, <laughs> it's a good so question. I, yeah, so I began to look into the history of the German archival profession during the Nazi years and the Second World War, and it turned out that uh, some leading archivists, I mean, not all of them, of course, but some important figures of the Prussian archival administration had served in the civil administration of countries that had been occupied by the German army. So German archivists became part of the military occupation of other countries, and some of them, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, became part of events that we now consider uh, to amount to um, cultural plunder, right, Mm -hmm. to the alienation and destruction of uh, the cultural heritage of those countries. And, of course, the archivists at the time defended their action and said they were safeguarding the archival heritage of those countries. But um, already during the war, the Allies had branded any transfer of cultural goods in German-occupied countries, you know, whether by sale or exchange or outright theft, had uh, branded such, such actions as having taken place under duress. Now, switch to the post-war period. The same German archivists who had served, say, in in France, in Belgium, in the Ukraine, in Poland, were now staffing the leading West German archives. Uh, In 1950, the uh, Bonn government decided to found a federal archive, the Bundesarchiv, and both the Bundesarchiv and the archive of the reconstituted German Foreign Office were in a very curious uh, position. I mean, these guys basically presided over empty stacks, the, the records of the Foreign Office uh, were in Allied hands all the way back to 1860. And the new Federal Archive had been tasked to uh, receive returning captured records, of which there were none, and uh, to collect records that the new Federal bureaucracy uh, was producing, of which at this point there were none. So basically, um, both archives had no records. And they pushed very strongly for the return of the captured records and, and be it only to legitimize their very own existence. Um, so you probably see their uh, dilemma. And um, as they did so, uh, as they clamored for the return of German records, they employed at times um, rather nationalistic language. They accused the Brits and the Americans uh, to violate international law by keeping the German records They accused them of treating West Germany like, you know, a colony, a very loaded 
uh, accusation for sure. And they argued that uh, if the Allies want Germany to be a good ally in the Cold War, uh, they have to return these records. Okay. Now, uh, and not a word did these archivists drop about their own role during World War II uh, in occupied countries. Uh, they themselves had engaged in archival plunder, and here they accused the Western allies of doing just that. Uh, so let's just say that there's a certain tension here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You tell one story, and I'm trying to find it in the book. I have the book right in front of me. Uh, some of these characters were actually quite unsavory. Uh, and I'm thinking of the case of um, when the Bundesarchiv was being set up, the person in charge of it was going to tap somebody to do it. And it turned out that he had a very, uh, he had a kind of rather checkered past. And he was eventually not given the job, and then he was dismissed from the archive or something like this for making anti-Semitic comments. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's the famous Roger case. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so there, the Federal Archives um, were founded in 1950, but it really took them two years to get, uh, get going uh, because staffing was such a major issue. Um, there was one... Uh, deputy of the German parliament who happened to be an archivist in his previous life, but he had been sacked in um, the early 30s because he was a social democrat. And of course, the Nazis would not leave a social democrat in a civil service position. So this guy was, uh, was sacked, but he knew the archives from the inside and he knew the staff from the 1930s. So he had no illusions uh, about like who you know who these people were, and that he still considered them to be very nationalistic. So he wanted to make sure that the archives would only um, go into that that the, the newly founded uh, federal archive would only staff with politically reliable people, people who were willing to embrace democracy for all the right reasons. So he watched the staffing process very closely, and uh, uh, and it turned out then that it was very difficult to staff this archive because all of these uh, archivists had been Nazi party members uh, during the 1930s. Um, so uh, it was hard to, to staff this place. Now, eventually, um, the position of this deputy um, in the Bundestag uh, was growing weaker so that uh, they could um, appoint someone as a director who, uh, Georg Winter was his name. Yeah, Georg Winter, he had never been a member of the Nazi party, but he had been involved uh, in the Ukraine um, and in, in France as well at some point uh, in the administration of uh, those countries' archives. So his record was definitely not uh, clean, but since he had never been a formal member of the party, uh, he could be sold uh, to the public and especially to the allies as a reliable person. And he now tried to bring in a guy um, by the name of Rogge, who was uh, a historian and archivist, but who uh, during the um, uh, Nazi era had collaborated with the SS and had uh, reported on other archivists and had, you know, had denounced people, basically. And um, as he was trying to bring this guy in, uh, one person who had been denounced uh, remembered this and uh, and voiced concern about this person. And... Um, and Winter uh, uh, then develops incredible uh, plans and plots and energy <laughs> to bring this guy in regardless. And uh, this is only thwarted at, at kind of last minute. But it really tells you something about the archive director's attitude towards um, 
people who had compromised themselves during the Nazi era. And uh, okay, so Raga does not get an archivist job. He gets he will do some something else, um, but he continues to conduct historical research. So uh, he shows up at the archive of the Foreign Office and wants to work in the reading room in the late 1950s. And at the time, the records had been returned by the uh, Americans and the, the British, uh, but only under the condition that the, uh, that the records would be accessible to any scholar, uh, including you know the most recent uh, past, all the way up to 45. Mm-hmm. And this was implemented really very liberally, meaning that foreign scholars had just the same right. And uh, so it so happened that Robert found himself in the reading room with uh, a user from a professor from Poland. And he assumed that that professor was Jewish. And he complained very loudly that he had to sit in the same room with a uh, a Jewish Polish uh, professor, whereupon the director of uh, the Foreign Office Archive, a certain Johannes Ulrich, um, revoked his access privilege and basically kicked him out of the reading room. And Roger then sued uh, um, against this director and his decision and lost the case. And the interesting thing is that uh, the judge who had to look at this uh, wrote a very interesting opinion and basically really branded Roger as an anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is a that is a telling story. So, uh, tell us. We're running out of time, and I have a lot of more. I have many more questions. So, tell us quickly how the uh, how the archives actually made them back made it back to Germany. <laughs> Yeah, the um, the West Germans and the uh, 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 Americans and the British uh, negotiated for for many years. Um, the archive of the Foreign Office was returned uh, uh, in 1957, and then, uh, but there was still like a huge collection of uh, military files, mostly stored in the United States. Um, those records began to come back in the late 50s and throughout the 1960s, and. Um, so the uh, there was never like you know a, a, a contract. It was more like a mutual agreement uh, how things would be done. Uh, the Germans for a very long time uh, argued on principle, um, you know, like uh, emphasizing their ownership, and uh, that's something that the um, especially the Americans would you know would didn't want to deal with. All they wanted to deal with was the very practical questions of what would would return when and how that would be done logistically. And eventually the, the Germans realized that they would not um, get a, you know, grant proclamation that would, you know, put the allies in the wrong. They wouldn't get that in writing. Anyway, so uh, the records returned in the uh, throughout the late 1950s and the 1960s uh, and were um, uh, housed in uh, German archives. On the German side, among archivists, there was much competition who would get what. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, there was really not... Uh, uh, it was not very a, a very peaceful uh, peaceful uh, affair, and um, yeah, so that's how the records eventually came back. And then, but you know, the story almost continues until the present day. Every now and then, you know, something still uh, shows up in the stacks. Nobody knew it was there, and uh, so some some maps or other items are still uh, being returned every now and then. Mm-hmm. Work to be done. I, I want to ask. Two questions about the use of the files once they had been repatriated. Um, the, the first question is this. Um, we tend to think of these files as historical records to be used by historians uh, for the writing of history. But 
um, I also happen to know that in the early 1960s, I'm assuming that materials from these files were used in German uh, war crimes trials. I'm thinking of the Einsatzgruppen trial, which was in the early 60s, I think. I can't remember. Late 50s, 58. 58, yeah. Um, the first Yeah, the first ones. Um, and then there were other trials as well that, that took place. What, what role did these archives play in the initiation of those proceedings? Yeah, I should say, though, that I did not uh, pursue the, the legal route of these records, but are co- completely correct that they played an important role. So uh, when they were returned and arrived at the Bundesarchiv in Koblenz, the first users were not the historians. They didn't jump at this, but the, the, the attorneys did. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the legal scholar, the legal people did. And um, it's I'm, I'm speculating a bit in my conclusion. Um, the Germans, the West Germans had employed all sorts of arguments to convince the Allies to return the records. You know, they said, oh, we need it for to get our bureaucracy uh, up and running again. We needed to uh, write history and illuminate our people. Uh, that's what we need the records for. But they never said, look, we need the, record, the records to prosecute perpetrators. They never said that. Yeah. But I did find two incidents where the, foreign, the German Foreign Office requested records to help in some ongoing proceedings. And in those two cases, their request was promptly met. Utterly promptly. And so that that made me believe that if the Germans had constructed an argument around the issue of uh, prosecution of of perpetrators, they might have gotten their records back a a little quicker. But uh, as we know, um, the the, uh, uh, trials were, uh, you know, difficult to mount and uh, because German society was just not willing to engage with it yet. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a very interesting story, and I, and I hope somebody takes the time to tell it. How how the, the really once the files were returned, then the Bundesrepublik initiated. I think they even set up a kind of war, war crimes trial office. Yeah, they did Ludwigsburg. Yeah. yeah, in Ludwigsburg, and 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 they really started to look at these even before the historians got at them. And and I just find yeah, that that whole episode of the of these trials and the manufacture of a kind of quasi-usable past and what to do with these people because many of them were very highly placed at the time. You know, it's a, I just find it very, it's a, it's a very evocative and interesting story. And that leads me to my second question. When did historians actually start to use the files to write German history? And I guess this is a, a, by way of asking, when did Germans actually start to write the history of, uh, of the Nazi years and of the Second World War? Because here, there before, I mean, it had been written by Americans and British. Well, yeah, it, 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 this is probably a larger story in that, uh, you know, what we call contemporary history, the history of yesterday, um, was long within the historical profession in the United States and Britain and Germany was rather disregarded mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. You know, it was uh, derided as journalism uh, and not real history. Yeah. Um, my, and my, part- advisor, my advisor had something called the 70-year rule. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and he was he was sort of an older generation. Like if it wasn't 70 years old, you really didn't study it. <laughs> right, right. And the reason partly is because uh, the historical profession at the time was still somewhat wedded to historicism and and uh, or a late version thereof. And, uh, and it was important that you write real history based on uh, records from the state. 
And as long as those records are not available, available, obviously your history ain't, ain't history yet, right? Right. So, um, and the interesting uh, development now is that um, with the capture of these records, they actually became available much faster than regular state records would. That's a good point. So, um, so uh, there was no 30-year rule that applied once these documents had been returned to uh, West Germany, and you could like see everything up to uh, 45, and didn't have to wait until um, uh, 75 to start uh, doing this. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, but then there were of course other barriers that that kept German historians from engaging with the most recent past, and that is just that you know obviously it was not there. Their best, um, uh, uh, the best time of their country. So, uh, regular historians at universities often circumvented that era mm-hmm. and didn't want to deal with it. And so, the um, the Bavarian government and the uh, federal government funded an institute in Munich, uh, which is the uh, Institute for Contemporary History. It still exists today, and uh, and these people there at that ins- research institute, they their prime reason. Uh, was to uh, investigate the history of late Weimar, the rise of the Nazis, the Nazi years and the Second World War. But in a way, um, Nazi history was almost in quarantine uh, at that institute. I mean, it was not really making it into the curriculum of uh, regular university courses or on the research agenda of university professors, but was conducted instead at a research institute outside of a campus. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that also tells you a little bit institutionally, it tells you a little bit uh, about the reluctance to start doing this. Mm -hmm. I, I, this may sound like an odd question, but I, um, I've, I saw these books once and I believe it's a, it's a large series, big volumes called, I think it's called Deutschland unter Zweite Weltkrieg, Germany. Uh And so do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they are from the. Uh, they are actually from the Institute for Military History, which is uh, funded by the uh, by the Bundeswehr. Uh-huh. Uh, these people were first in Freiburg, and now they are in in Potsdam. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a, it's a very valuable series. Yeah, what is the status of that? Is that a, a quasi official history produced by? I mean, what what should we think of that? I mean, just to give the readers an idea, this is a large multi volume history of. Germany in the Second World War. Uh, right. it, it looks for all the world official. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's obviously state funding behind it. Uh, like in many things, many much historical scholarship in Germany is, is state funded. Um, that series has its own history. Oma Bartov has written about it. And um, the, oh, yeah, I should look at that. that. Let's just say that the later volumes, the most recent volumes, are really top-notch, uh, up-to-date interesting military history scholarship that has opened up to, you know, issues of war and society, uh-huh. uh, gender, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the modern, the new military yeah. history and not the pipe and drum kind of yeah. military history. Uh-huh. The earlier volumes are perhaps, uh, I mean, not only are they heavy to digest, but, uh, but are not as open yet, uh, in, in that regard and really read very much like battle history mm-hmm. and, uh, but but the later ones really I I uh, could could recommend but they are very uh, big. Yeah, they are very, they are very big and they're very exhaustive. Uh, so uh, could you talk just a little bit? Uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, if I'm a German graduate student today and I want to write about some aspect of the Second World War, is that 
an acceptable thing to do. Um, and I'm not just talking about the Holocaust or persecutions or anything like that, perpetrator studies. I mean, is it, do, do you know, or the rise of the Nazis. Is, is, is this now considered to be a kind of conventional thing to do? Yes, I'm going to write about, I don't know, uh, Goebbels or something. Is that now okay? Uh, oh, is that now okay? That's uh, well. I mean, there's of course a large body of scholarship already, so I think that graduate student would have to yeah, sure, I, to find his niche. And no, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a badly stated question. I, I guess what I'm saying is, is there was a time in the Bundesrepublik when you didn't write about the Second World War or the Nazis. Uh, that, well, that's that's definitely over. Let's right. Let's, it's over. Yeah, that, I guess yeah. that is my question now. Is that there doesn't there's no hesitancy to use these archives no. for those purposes any longer? No, no, no. Well, that is a very that is a very good thing. Um, we taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. Uh, this is a terrific book. I wondered if you could close the interview, Astrid, by um, telling us a little bit about your next project. This is our traditional final question on New Books in History. What are you working on now? Yeah, um, well, I'm working on my second book at the moment, and it's uh, tentatively entitled West Germany and the Iron Curtain. Um, it's about the consequences of the inter-German border for the former West German state. So I look at uh, various changes on the Western side. For instance, the emergence of a borderland where none had been before and how these borderlands fit into the new West Germany, um, how these borderlands were perceived. And uh, like West Berlin, these borderlands were spaces created by the Cold War and the ideological competition between East and West dictated that the borderlands be firmly integrated Mm -hmm. into the newly founded Federal Republic. So I think of them as laboratories where West Germany had to wrestle in very concrete ways with socialist East Germany and it had to address the practical consequences of partition, um, most notably by uh, mitigating the economic consequences of uh, having an increasingly impermeable uh, border. Mm-hmm. And um, a large section of the book will also be uh, will be an environmental history of the Iron Curtain. Um, what, what, what consequences did the border fortifications and the border regime have for the surrounding landscape? And what role did uh, transboundary pollution play in the relations between the two German states? So in brief, what I'm trying to do is uh, to look at the history of the old Federal Republic, the former West German state, uh, from the geographical periphery and uh, write these borderlands into the post-war history of divided Germany. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like a fantastic project, and I very much wish you luck on it. Today we've been talking with Astrid Eckert about her book, The Struggle for the Files, The Western Allies, and the Return of German Archives After the Second World War. Astrid, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Astrid Eckert about her book, The Struggle for the Files, The Western Allies, and the Return of German Archives After the Second World War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.